Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. Cattle producers around the country are feeling the squeeze as the cattle market fails to give them competitive prices for their cattle month after month. Why is the market like this? How do we improve it? We visited with Georgetown professor and economist Nathan Miller to discuss just that. Well, welcome to the RCAF USA Roundup. We are so excited to have you on and learn from you. So before we get into the depth of our conversation, can you kind of give us an introduction? Tell us about yourself, your career, your background. What do you do? Well, uh, good day. It's happy to be here. Uh, my name is, is Nathan Miller. Um, I'm a professor at Georgetown University. Uh, in the business school, and I teach our business students about economics and strategy. Um, I also teach uh, students data analytics, and and I teach uh, antitrust, uh, PhD students antitrust economics, and and, um, uh, over in the economics department. So just a whole lot of economics, Um, uh, a lot of teaching. I do research on various aspects of antitrust, how we can make markets more efficient. Um, And, uh, you know, that's that's sort of my agenda with, with, with work. So kind of easing into your work, you recently released a study, Buyer Power in the Beef Packing Industry, an update on research and progress. So is this your first study regarding the beef industry? Yeah, it is actually. Um, and it's been a lot of one, it's been, it's been one that, that has been a lot of fun to work on and, and I hope it can make a small difference. Um, so happy to talk more about it. Awesome. And we'll definitely talk more about it um, here in a bit. But so what are some of your other studies that you really found like particularly interesting and powerful that our readers might think is cool? Well, you know, my research overall is 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 focused on uh, the economics of of antitrust, um, uh, often with respect to mergers and acquisitions. And so uh, two of the papers that that I'm uh, better known for have to do with the beer industry and in particular, the economic repercussions of the, the joint venture um, entered into by Miller and, and Coors back in 2008. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a deal that, that was cleared by the Department of Justice on the basis of um, uh, what they would call efficiencies, this notion that the merger would allow um, uh, the joint venture to sell Coors um, you know, at a lower cost to consumers. And there's a good basis for that. Uh, you know, you don't have to ship cores from, uh, say, Golden, Colorado anymore, all around the country. Uh, but, it, 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 you know, what, what my studies show is that that particular merger had an unintended, unintended consequence of facilitating coordination with Anheuser-Busch. Um, and so if you look at the time series of prices, what you see is that prices go up by maybe 6%. Um, uh, at the lower end of the market. So we're talking Bud Light and Miller Light and Coors Light. Um, and so, so you know, th- that's an example of, of one way we can look uh, at the past and, and maybe learn a little bit about uh, how future enforcement decisions should be made to help protect consumers and, and uh, generate more favorable market outcomes. Very cool. So walk us through what led you to participating in this beef study and what really led to your interest in the beef industry in general? Well, I think, um, yeah, I have a lot of interest in agricultural markets that's been laden over the years. And, and, um, you know, it just is about the history of our country. I mean, if you go back 100 years, we have 
you know, something like 80% of Americans working in agriculture, it's a big part of our national identity, um, even if, you know, the overall contribution to the, to the economy, you know, adding up dollars and cents is a little bit smaller than it used to be. And I've also know that, that uh, you know, a lot of farmers out there have been saying that the markets aren't working for them. Um, and and I, I want to take that seriously and try to bring the economic tools to bear that, that you know, um, you know, basically take what they're saying in words and describe it with the economics. Um, now, uh, beef is, is one area where certainly this is the case. You know, we've got a, 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 a long supply chain with beef and it involves hundreds and thousands of, of uh, folks, I'll call them farmers, but, you know, be it the stalkers and the ranchers and, you know, uh, feedlots. And, and it's been hard to make a living in that space. Um, and there's some concerns about whether whether the effort and the value that they create is captured in the form of the prices they receive. Um, and so I'm just, you know, aware that economics has not really given them voice. And, and um, you know, I, I've, you know, for the particular context of beef, I've been able to um, make progress with economics in a way that I think I think is uh, potentially helpful and useful for folks. Very cool. So before we get into the findings and details of your study, tell us about your process of your research and the process of creating this study. Well, I've been thinking about beef markets for a while. Um, and um, like many agricultural markets, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things you, that are important to know. Um, and getting up to speed with, with the details was one of the challenges for me, and it, and it, it, it took time. Um, uh, but there's a basic set of intuitions that, that um, you know, once I started thinking about, and I think this could have been as long as 10 years ago, um, I, I just sort of it started, my, my mind started cranking on it, and I started working through uh, some of the implications. Um, I would say two or three years ago, I started working with Matt Weinberg, uh, gathering data, um, we pulled in a couple of my um, uh, graduate students at Georgetown University, Minji Kim and um, uh, Francisco Garrido, who's now an assistant professor at ETOM down in, in Mexico City. Um, and uh, between the four of us, we've been able to collect actually a fair amount of data on the beef industry over time and, and work through this sort of economic modeling that'll go into um, uh, an academic publication. So, okay, now let's time, it's time to really just dive into your research paper. So first things first, you noted that you found a 1% increase in the fraction of cattle purchased under alternative marketing agreements or AMAs as most of our listeners know them is associated with 5.9% reduction in the cash market price. So can you expand on this, including whether the starting point is the current volume of the AMAs in the market? Yeah, um, that's that's a good question. The the um, look, what we did is is look at weekly data published by the USDA. All right, now this is available from yeah maybe two thousand two two thousand three up through we're using data through two thousand nineteen, so we miss out on the COVID year. Um, we're we're going to start our analysis in two thousand five just to you know get past the. Um, uh, the disease that went through the herd in 2002, 2003, something like that. So, so our analysis is weekly data provided by the USDA um, over roughly a 14 or 15 year time period. Uh, so it's a little bit more comprehensive than what's been done in the past, um, but, the, but, but um, uh, the method is pretty similar. 
you know, the, 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 basically the idea is that in some weeks, a bunch of camp cattle are coming in on formula contracts. And we understand as a matter of the economics that formula contracts are going to change the incentives of the packers to bid aggressively in the cash market. All right. Now that's a, that's a, and, and our understanding of the economics or the incentives of bidding um, that just flows through, um, uh, you know, economic theory. And so uh, to make that real, to see whether, you know, the economic theory holds true in the data, we look to see whether in weeks where there's more formula contracts coming in, cash market prices are lower. And uh, that ends up being the case. And like you mentioned, the particular point estimates we're getting is that on average, a 1% increase um, in, in a formula contract is associated with a 5.9 percentage um, uh, reduction in the cash market price. Now, I say is, is associated with because uh, the study doesn't establish causality. And this is something that, that antitrust economists have talked, you know, actually uh, agricultural economists have talked about in this particular context is how do you interpret this result? It's not necessarily the case that we can prove that, that it's the formula contracts that are causing the lower cash market price, but it is consistent with it, with that effect. And it's the sort of thing that I would expect to hold if you think that, that indeed formula contracts and, and AMAs are uh, potentially a competitive concern in the industry. Uh, lastly, you asked about whether the 5.9% is, is built on the current um, level of formula contracts, which we know is, is quite high. Um, and the answer is no, this will be at the average level through the, the year um, uh, 2005 to 2019. Uh, in percentages, uh, I believe that the, the numbers are a little bit larger uh, uh, more recently. So when I watched your presentation at the Yale Antitrust Conference, you talked about that 80% of fed cattle volume is currently tied up in those formula and forward contracts, those AMAs. And so that gives a pretty large frame of reference as to tying it into um, the association of that 5.9% reduction in, in cash market price. Um, so would that 80% average, would that be the average formula contracts during the entire study from 2005 to current, or is that more currently what we are seeing? Yeah, and 80% is about what you see right now. Um, if you go back, you know, we have a long history of, of formula contracts, for example, in, in the industry. If you go back to 2003, it's going to be about 20%. If you go back wow. to, if you go back to uh, 1990, it'll be about 10%. Wow. All right. So you've had this gradual run up in the number of formula contracts over time. Now, speaking specifically at formula contracts, that'll be about 60% now, or maybe 65%. And then you tack on the, the forward contracts, which are subtly different, and you get up to the 80. So we are talking about a big volume move out of the cash market. There's been an incredible shift away from the cash market over the last two decades. And this is the, the what um, you know is not novel for folks that have been in this data, but is really important for for um, I think policymakers to understand is is that we've seen two things happen um, over over the last uh, few years. I mean, one is this tremendous shift in the what I'll call the spread the packers are able to obtain for cattle. Okay, in other words, that you know the, what I mean by the spread is the price they're able to sell beef. Uh, the gap between that and, and the price at which they buy cattle. I mean, that's, that's gone up uh, starting around 2015 to 2000, 
19 is roughly doubled. Of course, it's gone up since then, although we have less confidence about how to interpret the numbers because with COVID, there's a variety of other things floating around as well. Um, so there's this, this increase in the, in the apparent market power of the Packers that's difficult to explain due to higher cost or changes in demand. Um, and at the same time, or, or roughly contemporaneous is this, is this shift in, in the, the prevalence of AMAs and the thinness in the cash market. Um, and uh, putting the two next to each other, it, it suggests just, you know, just looking at data that one might cause the other. And of course, there's an economic reason to think that that would be the case as well. This conversation is super interesting to me because our last podcast episode, we interviewed Christopher Leonard, author of The Meat Racket. So he described in detail more that socioeconomic um, picture of what this market power and concentration has done to both rural America and consumers as he investigated this issue. And now you're giving us hard data numbers. And so, you know, we're seeing it in such a multifaceted view, interviewing multiple people about this this market power and consolidation. So super interesting. Um, You caution in your body of work that the USDA has defined these fed cattle procurement regions and should not be interpreted as economically independent geographic areas. Can you further explain why this is an important issue in your research paper? Oh, yeah. So, you know, let me, let me take a step back here. Um, One of the things that, that, um, I think feedlots are struggling with, and and of course, if feedlots are struggling with it, then ranchers and stockers will be affected ultimately in the end as well, is that uh, when they're participating in the cash market, often they may only have, you know, one one packer bidding for their cattle, you know, and, and um, or maybe two, but, you know, you might like three or four. Um, and so there's a question we have about, about how concentrated these markets are, if we think about the options that are faced by a particular feedlot. Um, and, you know, we, the data we have are, uh, it may not really be informative and I think are not informative for the choices and the options that are available to specific uh, farmers, specific feedlots. Um, and so, for example, we can, with the data we have, construct notions of the average market concentration in the United States or the average market concentration in a particular region like Kansas. But we have much less of an ability to talk about the concentration and the choices and the options that are available to specific farmers in specific locations. All right. And so, you know, I just try to caution against overinterpreting uh, data that are aggregated up to the regional level. When we know that shipments go across region borders, there's no reason that doesn't happen. Um, and furthermore, um, you know, a typical shipment might be 100 miles or less, um, you know, something like this. And so, you know, you're not going to find it economical to ship your cattle from one end of Kansas to the other. Uh, and, and we want to try to say something and, and ultimately we'll be able to say something about uh, the degree of concentration and the number of choices that a typical farmer has access to. But what it really boils down to is the cattle... Um... The cattle market is fluid geographically. There are cattle that move from Kansas down to the Texas panhandle to be processed, which would mean that they're moving out, you know, into a different USDA reporting region, correct? That's that's my understanding of, of practice, and I don't see any reason why that wouldn't exist. And in this country, you can go across the state borders whenever you want. Uh, it's just sometimes you're further away. Yep. 
And I'm here in Nebraska, you know, Nebraska born, bred and fed cattle don't always stay right here in this USDA reporting region of Nebraska to get yep. harvested and processed. So yep. yeah, it's a fluid situation and it's probably time the USDA recognized that. On this issue of kind of the regionalization, this, this um, isn't in our panel of questions, but it's got me thinking, do you have any thought as to why a region such as Texas that has a high concentration of market choices also has the highest concentration of AMAs and contracting structure? Uh, that's not something I've looked into specifically. So let me just address it as a matter of theory, okay. which is that, um, you know, one of the, one of the um, effects of AMAs is going to be to put downward pressure on prices in the cash market. Uh, this is, this is a, again, a theoretical result, but the extent to which that matters, um, either in terms of having an effect on prices or on increasing the profits of the packers is going to depend on their ability to move the cash market price. And so just as a, just as a matter of economic theory, one might predict that formula contracts are going to be more profitable where there's a greater market concentration of packers um, because those packers are going to be better able to move, um, move a cash market price. Excellent. Your research paper includes purported benefits of AMA, such as lower transaction costs and increased capacity utilization at the feedlot and packing plant levels. How would you weigh those benefits with the costs you've identified in your research paper? Well, let's let's think about the benefits here, because there's, a, I think, a, a common misconception about some of these benefits. And um, uh, and I'll say that, you know, what I hear more than anything else has, um, uh, that sounds reasonable to me, uh, is the notion that for plants to be profitable, they need to manage the flow of cattle through their plants. Okay. Now, um, I believe that to be true, um, that that's a real thing we need to be thinking about. And, and um, although, you know, maybe, di maybe difficult to quantify. Um, and the problem with the cash market these days is it's pretty thin. And so, um, you know, sometimes there can be more cattle and sometimes there can be fewer cattle. And that can be pretty scary if you're a packer looking to, um, uh, you know, procure cattle uh, via the cash market. And contracts are a way to make, to, to obtain a more predictable source of supply. But let's think about that for a moment. Okay. The reason the cash market is thin is because so many cattle are traded on contract. If you did not have the contracts, you would have a thick cash market, the way this country's had for decades, and you'd have a more reliable source of procurement for the packing plants. You'd also have more reliable, you'd have more, buy, more predictable buyers um, uh, for the feedlots. And so there's a sense in which um, uh, the, perhaps the greatest benefit of formula contracts exists only artificially due to the presence of the formula contracts. The problem is the cash market is thin. And if you have a thick cash market, these problems are resolved. In other words, another way to say this is that there may not be much efficiency from a formula contract if one took the approach of getting rid of them from the market. 
All right. Now, there's a variety of other things that have been claimed, such that um, uh, formula contracts allow for better investments in quality of the cattle that, uh, to my understanding, that there's not much empirical basis for it. It might be true. It might not be true. Um, uh, you mentioned transaction costs. I mean, I think it is the case that 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 uh, packers used to hire a bunch of folks to go out and look at cattle, and that doesn't happen so much anymore. I don't know if, you know, if that's just about technology evolving or if that's a function of the contract. So that's a little bit ambiguous to me as well. Uh, to the extent these are real, then I think it's 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 uh, the role of economists to think about how we can structure contracts in a way that provides the benefits without putting the same sort of downward pressure on the cash market price. And it's not hard to do. All we need to do is make the prices that get paid on contract not be linked to the cash market outcomes. And if you accomplish that, um, and there's a variety of ways to do it, then you can have the benefits of the contracts, whatever they may be, um, uh, without the same sort of negative repercussions upstream. Uh, and so, you know, this is one direction we're heading in the paper. But again, I think the biggest sort of sort of efficiency gain here that's, that's created by uh, contracts may actually be artificial and, and um, uh, would be equally as equally as well realized in a market without contracts. So you kind of said that this paper is still a moving body of work. So it's probably not fair for me to ask you at this point um, what your suggestions would be to reverse this market power and, you know, return some robust performance to the cash market? Well, I mean, look, so what we're going to be able to do is quantify things a little bit better. Um, but we know the economic theory already. And so we can say that to the extent we think the formula contracts are depressing the cash market price, that if you can delink the contracts from the cash market, then you're going to solve the problem. If you get rid of the formula contracts, you solve the problem. Interestingly enough, if you divest all the plants, so you have single plant firms, you also solve the problem. So there are a variety of solutions, some of which are, might be feasible from a regulatory standpoint, other of which might be more difficult to accomplish, um, uh, that, that um, would potentially address sort of the, the, the um, what you might call the, as the adverse effects of AMAs uh, for upstream producers. That's excellent. I couldn't agree more. Nate, I wanted to ask you about a new report that actually just came out within the last day or two. The Washington Center for Equitable Growth put out a report called Protecting Livestock Producers and Chicken Growers, Recommendations for Reinvigorating Enforcement of the Packers and Stockyards Act. Have you had a chance to take a look at that? Well, that's an, an impressive document, and it covers a lot of material. And, and you know, I know Michael Cady as well. Um, and I was able to read the the sections that pertain to beef, um, but uh, have not engaged uh, in details overall. I know it just came out, and it is a big body of work. And we will um, we will link our viewers to it. I'm sure here very soon. Nate, like I said, I watched your um, presentation at the Yale Antitrust Conference that was just a few months ago. So was a presentation like that, is that part of the peer review process for your study? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, first of all, um, quite a pleasure to, to attend the, the Yale Conference um, and um, uh, a lot of nice papers there. Um, no, the, you know, in academia, a lot of the reasons we go to conferences is to disseminate our work. Uh, that conference was uh, a particular audience that I, I was happy to, to you know, share some of my thinking with, um, just as I'm sharing it with, uh, sharing it with you now. Uh, ultimately, what we will do 
and this could be six months from now or a year from now is is uh, send a finish you know have a draft that's complete and we'll send it to an economic journal um, and that's when the process will start for us in terms of publication and peer review um, yeah unfortunately for us uh, you know often this is this is sort of a multi-year process so it it, it takes a while to go through uh, all the steps so the title of your study and the summary of it implies your research is ongoing on this issue. So how much further are you intending to go with your research and when, I know it's kind of hard to say when you think it'll be complete, but really just how much further are you trying to go? Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, there's some things that, that we think we have a pretty good handle on and the results that, that, that we would like to obtain that we don't have. And you know, to provide some background, I've tried to describe a lot of the economics for you today, and I think we have a a, um, um, a decent sense of the economics. Um, but but we we didn't invent this. You know, there's there's really nice research done by other agricultural economists that work through the economics of AMAs. Um, you know, one paper that 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 I like a lot is by Tian Jia and and Richard Sexton that's published um, in the American Journal of Agricultural Economics in 2004. You know, they, they get a lot of the same results we do theoretically, but what we're able to do is take the same sorts of incentives and put them into what I'll call an economic model that that resembles um, uh, the the cattle markets as we see them today, including notions like um, uh, transporting cattle are expensive. And, you know, processing beef at the plants incurs a marginal cost of production. We're going to have all of this in the model. And as, as we're able to make that model better resemble the real world by matching sort of what I'll call the parameters of the model to things we see in the data, like how far cattle are shipped, we're going to be able to use the model to derive some insights that aren't available to us just talking about theoretically what the incentives are. So for example, we'll be able to get information about um, uh, local market concentration from the model um, that are not available from USDA statistics. We'll be able to get information about what would happen if you took formula contracts down from, you know, say 65% to 50% or 30%. You know, what, what are those economic trade-offs look like in the context of the model that after all looks sort of like the real world? Um, what would happen if you, if you, um, you know, split apart some of the big packers? We can address this in the model as well. So there's a variety of results that can be attained that will be interesting for economists and informative for policymakers that, that, that we're trying to develop. So the next step for us is to, you know, um, is actually to, to, to do this modeling step where we're taking the model we have and we're, we're um, you know, uh, manipulating it or moving it so that it resembles the real world. And then, and then understanding how different sort of changes would, would interact within the model to, 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 to obtain sort of finer, more specific, uh, more useful policy recommendations. So you asked about timing. Um, you know, the, the problem is that, that working with economic models at this level of sophistication uh, always takes longer, and it always takes longer than whatever number you say. Uh, and so, you know, this is the sort of thing that I try not to put a, a, a time limit on. I'm trying to produce the highest quality academic work that I can, and that's my priority. Um, I put out the sort of the, the, the paper you have access to as a research in progress because the conversation is happening now, and I don't want to lose sight of that. Um, but I also want to flag that there's there really is a lot more work for us to do to have the 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 uh, contribution at the level and the magnitude that we wish to have. 
Well, thank you. On behalf of the cattle producer, thank you for moving this um, important ag economic issue into the mainstream and, you know, taking such a deep interest in it. And I can tell there is a high level of sophistication going on with the work that you're doing. And I just want to say I appreciate it. So Jaden, wrap it up for us. I have another question. So as an outsider, somebody that had nothing to do with the beef industry, you weren't raised in the cattle industry like most of our listeners were. What was something very like that kind of surprised you as you started your research and just like what was something interesting to you about the cattle industry or the beef industry? Look, my job as an economist is to move forward our knowledge. And um in the beef industry, I found an unusual situation in which um, folks were saying one thing and economists are saying something else. And, and, you know, that often reveals an area where economics actually needs to be pushed a little bit. And that's what I saw. I saw an opportunity to make a contribution, to, 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 to try to explain why the markets are moving the way they're moving. And to, to, to bring economic theory to bear, to, to provide solutions so that maybe they work a little bit better. Uh, so that, that, that's all I'm trying to do is, is, is um, to help a little bit and, and to increase our understanding of what's going on. Very good. So, okay. Our last question that we always ask at the end of every podcast, what is your favorite cut of beef and how do you like it prepared? <laughs> you got to go T-bone, medium rare, salt and pepper. There you go. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nathan, for joining us and for sharing your research with us. We look forward to your future work. As independent economic research studies like Nathan Miller's help move our industry forward, we hope that policymakers take their findings into serious consideration. Healthy competition is needed in any healthy market. So let's bring it back to the cattle market. When we revitalize our cattle market, we revitalize rural America, and we support the people that put food on our family's dinner tables seven days a week. There are a few options on the legislative menu for this particular issue. We encourage you to support the plain and simple Make the Packers Compete Bill, S949, known as the 5014 Cattle Market Protection Bill. This bill forces the big four packers to purchase 50% of their cattle on the cash market and slaughter within 14 days. And that's that, plain, simple. Call your representative and senators at the Capitol switchboard 202-224-3121 and tell them to get on board. We appreciate you tuning into today's episode. Please like, subscribe, leave a review, and stay involved in the conversation by following us on social media at RCAPUSA on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the RCAPUSA Roundup. To learn more about RCAPUSA, visit our website, www r-calfusa.com 